0: So lighten up. I want you to think of this as a tailgate party right now. Could you just do that? It's Sunday. It's a good time for a tailgate party. Yes, right? What, so explain to me what it is about us as human beings that, that, you know, immediately we feel that little energy there, like, yeah, that's we relate to that. But why do we relate to that? Why do we like to spectate anything? Have you ever thought about how how strange that is? We're getting literally nothing out of it. We're just sitting there getting fatter as we, you know, stuff a bunch of brats down our hole and and, uh, and we're, but we but we're getting thrilled about what's happening out on a field, whether it's football or, you know, a chess tournament or whatever it is you're really into into the comp- maybe it's war, it is one army against another, but we we have this desire to just experience that from afar as, as spectators. Whatever that is, whatever the wiring is that, that God put into us that gives us the ability to do that, I want you to think of that for a minute in terms of how that was maybe even initially intended in order to spectate the things which God has done. The person of God, his glory, his power. And I can see how immediately some of you are already shutting down. It's like, I thought this was going to be sports. But you're talking about God. What I'm saying is, you were wired to be able to have that same sort of thrill, that same sort of sense of, of, of victory and being pumped when you see your side winning in the game. I mean, we're excited this year about the whole Panthers and all that stuff. Yeah? That's pretty... That's was pretty awesome, but uh, how much better is it when we actually see what God is doing? We're, we're looking here in this, this passage, which Carl just read to us, and uh, you have two sides of the coin here. You have two different groups which are opposing one another. There's going to be winners, and there's going to be losers. Hint, um, God doesn't lose. We knew you knew that, right? So you can kind of see that. That might be the only problem about spectating things when it comes to the kingdom of God is that God always wins. Would we get pumped up if we went to see a team that always won? Yes, we would. We know we would. So uh, just think of this like a like like I said, let's just think of it as a tailgate party, just metaphorically in your heart. You know, pull up a brat and, and a diet coke or your favorite libation and uh, get the hibachi going. Here, we're just gonna lick. And we're going to spectate, joyfully spectate the glory of God in Christ's kingdom victories. In Christ's kingdom victories. If you think about uh, the kingdom of God, the advancement of the kingdom of Christ throughout the world, that victory ongoing should get us pretty jazzed. That's what I'm saying. So, first of all, in this competition, don't fear the other guys. Don't fear the other guys. When it was day, the Jews uh, made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So, how about that? Uh, credit where credit is due. You got to give these guys high marks for just, you know, the fact that they were committed. Uh, they, they were absolutely, these guys are not pusher, pushovers. They have their strengths. The opposing team has some strengths going. They had formulated a brilliant foolproof play, right? It's, it's pretty, it, when you stop and think about it, you just look at the subterfuge here. The Romans would not have seen it coming. Like, well, of course the council would want to investigate and interview Paul again. What could be more normal than that? And had they not discovered the plot, if that were not to have come about, then they would have probably thought, oh, okay, how many, how many Romans do you need to just send, you know, to take Paul down to the council? Like one guy, two guys, something like that. And meanwhile, you know, 40 Jewish ninjas, two words you never thought you'd hear in the same sentence, just come, you know, jump Wah! off the rooftops of the little low-lying, you know, buildings there in Jerusalem or out through the alleys, or some of them surprising them on like woven baskets, like, Wah! and yeah, they would have been the end of it. Would've, those two Roman soldiers would have been killed, and Paul would have been killed with them, and that would have been the end of this story. It was a good plan. There was commitment. There was will. I mean, they they took a vow, after all, not to eat anything. Would you, would you do that? If Pastor Jay asked you for a favor, would you, would you stop eating for a day or two? I mean, think about it. And uh, so they're committed. This, this looked perfect on paper. How many have been engaged in football at any point in your life, and, and you ever sat and watched them draw out the, the play with the little zeros and the Xs and the lines and all of the maneuvers? And you list? on paper, they all look perfect. Like, this should be absolutely 100% foolproof. And that's, that's, how it, uh, that's how it appeared. And yet the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Do not fear the enemies of God. Think about some of the great enemies of God. I won't have time to go into long you know, history with you on this, but think of Pharaoh. Think of Pharaoh. That guy looked pretty insurmountable, didn't he? Uh, 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 Goliath. Everybody knows Goliath. How many remember Haman? A few of you? Book of Esther? right? All of these people that set themselves against God. What about Satan? What about cancer? What about depression or taxes or whatever it might be that seems so overwhelming? We get this idea that our enemies are just so powerful and that we're so helpless against them. And yet throughout Scripture what we see is that our God is a victorious God. No matter how good their plans are, the, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men go awry when they are against God's people and against God's kingdom. Secondly, no one checkmates God. No one checkmates God. That's why I threw chess in the beginning. I had to get you thinking about chess. Um, I think about chess. I never play chess. Because chess occupies some part of the brain that I obviously was shortchanged on. Um, Cannot play chess. I there's a whole I have a whole traumatic story about it, but I won't go into that. Anyway, you, you know how chess operates or should operate. I mean, I understand how it should operate. I should be able to think. Okay, now if I do this, then he could do this, 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 or this. And if he did this, this, then I would do that. But if I did that, he could do this or this or this, and then I could do yeah, and then have like all those eighty scenarios already in your head. That's chess. That's why I hate chess. Um, it's like no, that hurts my brain so badly. But you know, um, God, God can't be checkmated. You know, it just so happened. Um, how many times could you set up something like that in Scripture? It just, it just so happened. Well, it just so happened, Paul had a sister. How many knew that Paul had a sister? How many know her name, Agnes? Right, I. We don't know. Anyway, he had a sister. We find this out. He had a sister. Not only did he have a sister, we find out that he had uh, a nephew. She had a son who just happened to be of a certain age. And again, this is not the matrix. God doesn't, God doesn't say, oh, you know what? We need somebody in there, so I'll give Paul quickly a sister now and then you know, an instantaneous uh, son, so a nephew, and put him just in the right place and all of that. You know, Paul, God had all of that. You talk about chess moves. You talk about strategy. God already had all that in place. This is all within the sovereign working of God. It says, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Luke doesn't bother to tell us how he found this out. Like, why were they talking in front of Paul's nephew? Something off there. I think he just was like, kind of like a fly on the wall. Maybe one person, you know, s- suffered from voice modulation disorder, you know. What? We're going to kill Paul. Don't say that out loud. Someone will hear. Uh, maybe something to that effect. But anyway, the kid, the kid picks up on it. And and he goes and uh, he tells Paul, and Paul takes action. I don't, I, and I want you to see that we talked a little bit about this same sort of thing last time. But when we think of how God works in the world, we might we might imagine it in the in the wrong fashion. When Paul needs a rescue, God doesn't always have to send an angel. God doesn't have to send in a helicopter and then you know download pilot instructions into Paul's head. Rather, you know, you have the nephew there, and then you have Paul acting. The, the nephew doesn't come to Paul and say, hey, Paul, there's this, this plot to kill you, at which point Paul says, now listen, Ned, you have to understand, God's in control, God's got this, we don't have to do anything. Notice Paul does not do that. What does Paul do when he finds out? Paul, Paul understands, I, I think, Paul understands how God works. My nephew's bringing me this information. That didn't come from nowhere and nothing. God gave him that information for a reason. Now I have that information. And so he sends for the centurion in order to send him uh, on with the boy to see the tribune. When we come to believe in God's sovereignty, it doesn't mean we sit back and disengage the young man goes, he, he talks, he, he tells the, uh, the tribune, it says, and he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent." So Claudius Lysias gets this information. He's the tribune that we've been, you, have you been kind of tracking with the story, and you remember the tribune, he's been part of this story from the get-go. Now we, we you know, we, we, we get more insight. We later find out his name Claudius Lysias, and he is not going to let this, he's just not going to let this happen on his watch. This isn't really about Paul. This is about Rome. This is about the pride of Rome. This is about his soldiers. You know, the thought that, that, that these assassins would come and attack his men and attack a Roman citizen under his care absolutely was not going to happen. No one checkmates God. The God who called the universe into being, who knows its every molecule, and I know I mentioned this last time, but uh, it, to me it's just it's a, it's, a, it's a thought that has been really very present in my mind lately that if you're God and you and you brought the universe into being and you literally know every subatomic quark every particle then nobody's going to outmaneuver you nobody's going to checkmate you for us this is not only good news but it's something when you get a hold of it and you start reading this into and understanding reading it from the passages as it speaks to you in this way it ought to make us stand up and cheer we ought to have the same rush or the same feeling of our side winning when we... Re- I know it's 2,000 years ago, and maybe that starts to you know, get a little dusty to you, but, but this is huge because this is the same God who is still operating today through the gospel, through the church, through the missions of, uh, that, are, that are in all places in the world. God is winning, and God will not be outmaneuvered. Flip side of that, by the way, if you're setting yourself against God and you see this, you know, I don't know how big a brain you have and maybe you're really good at chess and maybe you can hold 50 different moves in your mind at one time when you see the, the little piece move on the, maybe that's you. Yeah, look who you're up against. If, if you set yourself against God, you're going to lose. So don't do that, don't do that. God can simply make an army to be his own. God can make an army to be his own. We have a battle here that isn't a battle. <laughs> it, was a, it was a pending battle which get, gets kind of called off. You had the two sides. You had two armed forces arrayed against one another. On the one hand, you had the 40, you know, crack Jewish ninjas that were ready to leap out and try to get at Paul. And uh, what has Paul got going for him? Did you, did you do the count as you went through here when you looked at the text? So there's 40 elite ninjas ready to attack. 470 Roman soldiers. Yeah. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one that you inform me of these things. Then he called, okay, do the count in your head, Uh, two two of the century, uh, sorry, get ready, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea the uh, the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Are you getting the... You're getting the, the numbers and the ratios there. If they'd had just ten more, I don't know why they didn't make it an even number. If they just had ten more, it would have been twelve to one odds. Twelve to one. This is a little bit of what you might call a forfeit. It was a forfeit before the game began. Here we got all of the backstory. We understand the plot. We understand all the wheels that had been set into motion. These guys must have been getting hungry and thirsty. I mean, you think about it. If there's one thing scarier than a Jewish ninja, it's a hangry Jewish ninja. And, uh, and how bad must this have been for them when they found out that there were 470 Roman soldiers taking palm getting out of Dodge? I mean the humiliation. They had, they had cooked this plan up. They had been so confident. You know they had to come in sounding really confident when all the questions came from the high priest and the council. Like, can you really do it? What's your plan? What does it look like? What have you? you know, they sold the whole thing, and it just goes nowhere. It's just a big nothing burger. What happened to them, do you think? Say, they must have starved to death or something, right? Well, Apparently not. Apparently, so, this is my, so the best reading I have on this is that even though the vows that they took back then were really, really sacred, and they would, yeah, they would go to great lengths to keep a vow, apparently there was like an escape clause in, in vows like this. Like if it was absolutely sort of an impossibility, you could go. But can you imagine the breakfast that they must have, you know, had of humble pie? Like trying to... Uh, Man, tail between the legs and the, and the whole story. Do you see how God defended his chosen servant by making the whole Roman army do his bidding without even telling them? It's just, it's insanely cool. He commandeers them. He deputizes them unbeknownst to them. That's the God we worship. That's our God. And we should, it, we should be thrilled when we think about that God. God can move pieces that don't seem to be his own. Whose side are the Romans on here in this story? The, the Romans are on the Roman side, yes. They're, the Romans are on the side of the Romans. They care not for Paul in particular except in as far as he is a Roman citizen. They care for him in that sense, you know. It's like the person, you know, like the missionary or whatever that goes overseas and they get in some war-torn area and then they have to send special forces in after him. It's like they, you know, you know, you can bet that they're unhappy that the person put themselves in that situation, but that doesn't matter. It's the pride of the USA, right? We got to go in there and, oh, oh," we got to get our own back out of there. That's what's motivating the Romans here. Whose side is Claudius Lysias on? There's a pattern here. I don't know if you're. He's on Claudius Lysias' side. You better believe it, man. You remember how he kind of botched things at the beginning when he arrested Paul? Because he didn't know who Paul was. He didn't know Paul was a Roman citizen. He thought he was some Egyptian terrorist, and, and he had Paul chained in a manner that he wasn't supposed to be chained as a Roman citizen, and he had him all stretched out. You remember like a, like a hideout drying in the sun, and it was getting ready to scourge him when he finds out, oops, you know, Roman citizen. Um... Claudius Lysias is looking out for old number one here. When he writes this letter, I'm not going to say he lies, uh, but he spins. This is where spin originated, in case you'd ever wondered uh, where political spin started. This is it right here. Um, I'm spinning a little. Uh, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. Skipped a little there, didn't he? Uh, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. You notice he's skipping just a couple things, and, and he's kind of embellishing just a little bit because he's looking out for himself. He, he, but look at how God is working and how typical this is of God working. God is able to work his will without doing Jedi mind tricks. God does not have to say to the Romans, this is not the Jew you were looking for. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to twist their brain or, or turn them inside out. If you go back and you think about somebody like Pharaoh, and maybe it upsets you that, you know, Pharaoh, it says God hardened his heart. But God doesn't, God doesn't take a good heart and twist it into an evil one. God is able to work his will, his sovereign will, in such a way that he doesn't violate even the will of the creature. Like, they're doing exactly what they want to do, but in doing what they want to do, like Joseph's brothers, God is working his purpose. Claudius is being Claudius. He's self-serving. He's spinning, but God accomplishes his will for his glory. How awesome is our God? How awesome is our God. Our God is in control. I am, you know, in, in that going with the whole tailgating sports analogy, I am tempted to call God the goat. Um, which it's a little irreverent. I I I know, right? But if you you know what the goat means. I never heard anybody use the term goat till, I don't know, maybe ten years ago. I don't know when that cropped up, when that started. But now we always talk about the goat and whatever sport it is. There's a goat, you know, you got Michael Jordan in basketball, you got Jack. Nicholas in golf, or maybe Tiger Woods, but I think it's Jack Nicholas, and, uh, you know, or the great Kevin Martin in curling, thought, I thought you would know that, but, <laughs> but God, I mean, God is, God is, God is, there's, there's no one that can compare with him, are we, are you ever simply at the mercy of forces beyond God's control? Never. Is God ever confused by the chaos and, oh, I just don't know what I'm going to do for my child here because everything is going so wrong. Does God ever do that? No. Our God is, is, is sovereign. Our God is able to make armies here and he's able to, to use people and move pieces on the chessboard that aren't even, quote unquote, his for his purposes. God can move his own at the pace He determines. So remember, Paul felt that leading to get to Rome, and we talked about that before, about how Paul was determined to get to Rome, and Jesus confirmed that that was his will for Paul. Remember that? The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And now, finally, we can account for the first leg of his journey. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. So Antipatris was about halfway between Jerusalem and, and Caesarea. It was in the heart of Samaritan country. And so you can kind of bet that by this point, by the point they've reached that halfway mark, those 40 ninjas are nowhere to be found. I mean, like they're, they are pretty much safe and in the clear by the point that they get to Samaria to to Antipatris. And at that point, they send the, uh, the 200 uh, spearmen, and soldiers home and, and it's just the seventy horsemen with Paul, which is you know still more than more than enough to keep himself safe. What is happening though in God's sovereign purpose is the journey to Rome has finally begun. And, and what we're gonna see at really the rest of the book of Acts could be called that journey of Paul to Rome. We're gonna finish in Rome. I know I'm giving away spoiler alerts here, but that's what that's what's gonna happen. And it's gonna be a very slow itinerary. God is going to move according to God's timing, and God, Paul's going to be stuck in places and shipwrecked, and a number of other things are going to happen along the way. But what we see is God is going to get him there. And I just love how God's kingdom purposes and his purposes from, for Paul as, as Paul are intertwined and mutual. Isn't that true? Isn't that true for you and me as well? We like to talk and think. How many think at all ever about your own destiny or purpose, where it's all going to go, how it's all going to end? I, I find I think about those things a lot. I used to think about my destiny, and it seemed like this vast, wide thing, and then as I've gotten older, it just seems like it. But anyway, I digress. You know, We, we can get so caught up thinking, well, how's it going to end for me? And I want to say to you, it's not that God doesn't care. God certainly does. He, he cares. But our purpose and our destinies for God are intertwined utterly with his kingdom purposes. And that's a beautiful thing because it means God is going to do with us what God wants to do. And we're going to get where we need to go. Now, it might be Rome. For Paul, it was Rome. Eventually, the second time he got to Rome, yeah, right. it was, it was literally the end of his life. But God had that in control, and we know that, that God will get us where he wants us to be. Finally, God will keep guarded what he wants to keep safe. Think about all the, the, the pieces of this puzzle, all of the human links in the chain of all of these events. The letter from Claudius arrives with Paul and the horsemen and Felix. The governor reads the letter. Paul is now in Caesarea under Roman auspices. It's a relatively safe place for him to be. He stays in a, a, a place, the, the Praetorium, which was actually built by, um, by Herod the Great. It says, on reading the letter, he uh, this is Felix, he asked what province he, Paul, was from. When he learned that it was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. So, the reason Felix asks Paul about what region he's from is because, under Roman law, he could have sent him to his home district. But because that would have been so far to go and then so much further for his accusers to come, Felix determines he's going to do it right there. And he, he's living in this, this, the, this place called uh, Herod's Praetorium. This is Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great? Great builder. Great, great builder, lousy guy. But, you know, really built a lot of stuff, like the temple and so forth. And um, and he built this palace in Caesarea that was magnificent. And it had a prison within it so they could keep Paul there. Paul is guarded in the praetorium. Which is kind of like saying, I don't know, uh, you're guarded at Leavenworth or something like that. Like, yeah, you're guarded. You're being kept safe. But you're not at liberty. Paul can't simply go wherever he wants to go. It's a little bit like having an ankle bracelet. Not that any of you would know what that is, but um, you know it's a little bit like that kind of a thing because he's got some freedom, but he can't, he can't leave the, the grounds probably. He has people coming and ministering to his needs and so forth. Do you think Paul was happy with that? And I'm asking you this, not on Paul, the visionary apostle who can see God's hand at work in his life. I'm asking you from a human perspective, this guy that's been all over the world preaching the gospel, do you think he's happy to be right there, stuck in one place for a couple years? You know, humanly speaking, I think the answer to that would probably be a great big fat no. Yeah, Paul knew that that um, that he was where God wanted him. What he does see for sure, with all of the the, the difficulties of it, is he knows that, that Lord is keeping him safe and preserving his life within that Roman system. Beyond that, I think he was probably pretty uncomfortable. I guess that's a lesson, because sometimes when God is doing exactly what he wants to do in your life to keep you safe, whatever that means for you, for your spirit, for your soul, whatever it might be, um, sometimes he, he puts you in a place to guard you, but he might be guarding you in the praetorium. Whatever that looks like in in your case. What we've seen throughout this passage is God's power. Our God, the one, our coach, the guy that, that, that controls our team and whether our team wins, he is all powerful, he is all wise, all knowing. Spectate that. This is our God working all things for his glory, for his purposes. All of this serves to advance the gospel. We ought to be able to take that in in um, like we ought to be able to see that like watching a a Chiefs game or or the Panthers. Marvel Christian at the God who cannot lose. He is wise. He is at work. He will accomplish His will. If you're going through a lot of chaos and turmoil in your life for a moment, can you just spectate that for a moment? Look at that. Breathe. This is our God. This is the one who is in control. Has God ever failed? Has God's arm been shortened? No, he's at work. Don't panic. Breathe. Trust him. You say, but I'm not Paul. You know, God had purposes for Paul, and I'm not Paul. I'm not an apostle. Didn't Paul write to the ordinary Roman Christians that in all things God works for the good, for those who love him, and are called according to his purpose? That's not Paul that he's talking about as much as he's talking to the people he's writing to. And he's talking about people like you and me. Now, you say, but love him and are called according to his purpose. I don't think much about God's purpose. I don't think much about God's kingdom at all. Hmm. Okay. That's a valid point. One that I often find myself admonishing myself about. Seek first His kingdom and all these things will be added to you. If you're not seeking His kingdom, then this seems further removed. So what do you do? What if you you call yourself a Christian but you have not really been seeking His kingdom the way you should? Repent. (laughs) Right? Repent. Turn it back around. We often find ourselves drifting. We become very concerned about our own little life and our own little kingdoms, our own little purposes, and we forget how our... Destiny is supposed to be intertwined with the purposes of God, so repent of that. Seek his kingdom. Turn back to that. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, you need to get back into his word, and you need to be back in fellowship in the church. And I'm not saying that people can't drift even within the church, but it's harder. It's harder. It's, it's a troubling t- thing in our, in our days that across the board, so many people who are named by the name of Christ have decided that church is optional. Well, if you spend all of your time out in the world and you, all you're doing all the time is getting the messaging of the world, how are you going to stop, start to think? How are you going to start to think about your future? If you want to claim the promises of the God that we're looking at today, turn back, seek him with all your heart. And if you stand on the opposite side of the, uh, the field from us in this, uh, in this game, um, you know, uh, not like a normal sporting event in that sense because if you're cheering for the for 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 great ben you know and and they're up against hoysington or i don't know whoever um, if your kid's out on the field if your kid's losing you're not going to just go switch sides just because you don't want to be on the losing side am i right maybe i'm not right i thought that was true anyway (laughs) but here's the beautiful thing if you're on the opposite side of the field and you're like man the the people the the team i'm up against and their coach is like so so smart and always so many steps ahead of me and we're just losing we're just get you know here's the thought you can walk across the field and you can join his team god has a very good surrender plan it's a very good surrender plan it's called repenting and believing in the gospel of Christ, and we just invite you to do that today. If you're away from Him and and you, you know, and you've seen Him as the opposing side, look to Him now. Look to Christ. See in Him the the, the true Shepherd of your soul, and believe in Him. And not only will He save you, He'll save you from your sin. He will save you for eternity from hell. He will save you for eternal life. But, um, but he will include you in his family and on his team, and you will be able to spectate the most amazing and glorious God and, uh, and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the way we can see you at work in the life of Paul. And though we are not apostles, Lord, we know ourselves to be your children, called by the gospel, called according to your purpose. Lord, we pray that you would indeed work your purposes in our lives. And more than that, Lord, that while you're doing so, that we would have that, that peace of heart and that faith and that trust to just allow you to do that and uh, and to trust you in the midst of it. And Lord, we, we pray that the gospel would go forth today and fall on receptive hearts and that those that are away from Christ would turn back and those that have never known him would surrender and love him and believe upon him. We ask in his name. Amen.